Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now, here is your host... Eric Skwarzynski. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Voice podcast. I'm so excited to have David Gibbs here on the show to discuss a bill that's got a lot of people, uh, I guess, rightfully panicked based on the headlines that were going out. Uh, I saw people sharing articles that said, you know, California is lowering penalties for uh, sex offenders with children. There's people who were saying, you know, pedophilia is being legalized in California. There's a lot of concern over SB 145. And so I wanted to bring him on to talk about it. But uh, first, I just want to say thank you to you for, for all the help you've done. Um, we've been kind of in communication for a while now and, and talking back and forth. And you've, I mean, the amount of stuff you've been doing in the background to help me and the show. And, and I know so many different victims of abuse in the church is, I, I, can't, I can't thank you enough for that. So I want to say well, thank and Eric, you. Let me you know. jump in. Always an honor. And, and I just want to say clearly uh, I believe if a child is going to be safe anywhere, they ought to be safe at church or school and, and to encourage, um, you know, persons of trust across America to assume that responsibility. It's a sacred responsibility. I mean, children, other people's children are being entrusted to your care and to make sure that they're, they're safe and, and that they're not put at risk and that predators stay out of the church. And then, you know, there is a, a travesty and it's not just, as you know, a uh, independent Baptist travesty, travesty. It's a national travesty. I mean, we've seen in the Catholic community in the Southern Baptist world, other uh, religious groups where, you know, there has been a pandemic, not just of COVID-19, but over decades now of child abuse. And to step forward and to make sure that victims, uh, number one, um, are treated kindly. They've already been victimized once. Let's not re-victimize them with how the, the church or law enforcement or social services or even family members interact with them. 
uh, but then to uh, let them realize, you know, that there are people who care um, that want to see this stopped. And I think sometimes what I hear, and I just want to put this in at the beginning, is, you know, why do these victims have to come forward? You know, couldn't they just, you know, deal right. with their pain themselves? And, and why do they need to talk about it? And I will tell you, you know, obviously, whenever you go through trauma, anything, any great loss, any great pain, any great injury, uh, you have a choice. You can internalize it. You can just deal with it yourself and you can say, I'm going to just, you know, deal with this hurt and I'm going to manage it internally. Or you can step forward and say, you know, my hurt could be used to help somebody else. And I personally believe that's the healthier approach to step forward and say, okay, I've suffered. But what can I do to make sure that no one else ever suffers similar abuse or hurt or mistreatment? And so, you know, I view uh, these folks that step forward um, as doing something noble. I promise you, uh, when someone has been legitimately abused, the easiest thing for them to do is nothing, to just sit back and to deal with it internally and to deal with their own hurt and pain. And so I think these folks that step forward and say, look, I, I'm not out with a, a spirit of vengeance. I'm out with a spirit to make sure not one other boy, not one other girl ever has to suffer at the hand of a predator. And I think that's very, very important that everybody understand the heart and spirit is to keep children safe. It could be your children, your grandchildren. It's so important that we uh, together uh, do what we can to eradicate child abuse and what's going on in the religious community. Right. And, and, and I was talking to you beforehand, that was kind of something that's morphed in the show is, is initially, you know, sharing the stories was so important, but, and I mean, there's been so many people that have been brave enough to share um, on this podcast. We're now 70 some episodes in and, you know, all these stories. And I know I've had a million conversations off mic that'll probably never be on mic, but they're taking steps to be vocal and advocates for this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that comes with obviously, you know, exposing what's happened is preventing future events happening. And, yes, you know, I, I have been trying to bring on people to discuss, you know, how to do this. I've talked to law enforcement. I've talked to people who are uh, work with um, therapy. They work with, you know, treating people. They work with identifying uh, different spots to look out for. And that's one of the reasons I want to bring you on today is because there, there is a lot of fear that, SB 145, which especially those in California are very familiar with, but we'll dive into it in a second, are very concerned that it is, you know, lessening the chance for there to be justice and for there to be um, legal action taken against people who commit crimes against children specifically. Um, can you just walk through SB 145 and what the bill says and is, which just hearing that and not thinking about too much can be a little bit shocking and then kind of describe to us what the bill is actually there for. Well, and, and let me begin that in all public policy, okay, anytime you have a law that's been passed and certainly a state like California um, is our leading jurisdiction. And, and what I mean by that, um, what happens in California oftentimes is duplicated across the nation because right. it's our largest jurisdiction. We have the most people there. And in many people's minds, uh, California is a trend leader uh, when it comes to law and precedent and different things. So um, as people look at what happens in California, there's a lot of question, will this now move across the nation? Now, I will put, and this is an opinion, 
Um, I am not overjoyed with this bill, but I, I think when people look at this and they say, you know, let, let's really understand what happened here. I'm a big believer, as you are, that good people uh, with good information then can make good decisions. And right. so um, let's really understand what happened here. Okay. When you are criminally charged, and, and, and this is in the sex abuse arena, but we'll just kind of use the criminal charging. There are two approaches to your sentencing. Now, let's make sure everybody understands you're already convicted. Okay, so at this point, you're already deemed in the eyes of the law as having broken the law. And now the judge has to sentence you, which means you are getting your punishment. It's fines, incarceration, the, the um, arsenal that the judge has to punish you for what you've done. There are two approaches to the punishment phase. One is what we call judicial discretion. That means the judge can decide in his opinion or her opinion whether the punishment should be at a more severe level or a lesser level. And then the other approach is more what we would call um, mandatory or sentencing guidelines, which means the judge doesn't have a choice. So right. if, if this person is convicted of this crime, they're going to serve five years. And the judge goes, well, there's a lot of circumstances here. I don't think five years, I, I would reduce it. Or this person, five years isn't enough. I want to increase it. Right. Um, when there's mandatory guidelines, then the judge has no discretion. They just have to implement what the guidelines say. And so it's discretion versus guidelines. Now, what California had was an interesting dichotomy depending on the type of sex abuse that occurred. Now, let me begin. You know, sex abuse is obviously an adult or an older person uh, taking advantage of a younger person, rape, molestation. We, we know the whole litany of terminology, but across the criminal spectrum, this person's already been convicted. What California built in was if there's only a 10-year gap. Now, why the 10-year gap? Well, this is kind of designed sometimes for what we might call the Romeo, Juliet, the 19-year-old and the 15-year-old. And, and, and please understand, we're not here to, you know, all of this is crimes. So everybody here, but to give the judge some discretion to look at the circumstances. So if there was a 10-year a gap and if certain sexual activity occurred, the judge had the discretion not to put the person on what we'll call the mandatory reporter or the registered offenders list. Okay, so um, what, when you're convicted of a sex crime, you get registered. Okay, that means when you move into a neighborhood, that means when background checks are done, uh, you become what we often refer to nationally as a registered sex offender. So at this point, you know, can the judge discretionarily keep you off the list? Right. And what California had in its law was if it was, and I'm going to use phrasing here, people can look at more of the details, but more traditional heterosexual activity, uh, a, a, a man or a woman with a opposite uh, gender, uh, that the judge had some discretion. If there was certain types of sexual activity that is more uh, commonly practiced in the homosexual or the alternative sexual universe, um, the judge did not have discretion. So um, if, if a man um, committed a crime against a boy, even though there was 10 years, and even though um, the um, crime was going to be admitted, the judge had no discretion but to put him on the registered offenders list. Right. On the other hand, if it was a man with a girl and it was more traditional heterosexual activity, the judge had the discretion. He could decide right. 
whether to put them on the uh, the mandatory or the registered sex offenders list. Now, that was what was California was looking at. And, and I think they got it wrong. And, I, and I'll, I'll tell you why. I think they should have just said, you know what, let's get rid of this disparity. And we're always going to put people on the registered list. We're going to do whether it's heterosexual activity, homosexual activity, we're just going to say that mandatorily uh, judges should just put them on the list and we shouldn't be having predators uh, not register. Um, mm -hmm. We realize that creates hardship when they go to get employed. We realize that's difficult uh, for them when they move into certain neighborhoods. They can't live within certain you know, distances of schools and churches and other things. We understand that. But for the protection of children, I would have preferred to see California go that direction. Interesting. But, okay. But what occurred is the, um, um, we'll call it the more sexual minority community, uh, the LGBTQ and others, they said, you know, why are we being treated unfairly? And, and you know, logically, in, in a state that has taken a, a very a strong position for equality based on those grounds, there is some disparity here. And so what they asked for and received in the law was the ability for the judge to have discretion either way. So now, you know, if there's within 10 years of age between, we'll call it the convicted person and the victim, the judge now has the discretion, regardless of the sexual activity um, that is occurring, the judge has discretion whether to place that person on the registered offenders list. Now, that went national as we, we saw with right. people saying, well, California is protecting pedophiles and keeping them um, you know, off the list. Well, in some measure, it is a little bit of a move, in my opinion, in the wrong direction. I, I believe that the registered offenders list is a very um, strong deterrent right. towards child abuse, that it, yeah. it does work to keep uh, people from finding opportunity, you know, because now, in theory, a judge could say, you know, I'm going to keep you off the registered offenders list, and depending on how the background checks are done and other things, um, they could move into certain neighborhoods. They might mm -hmm. be able to get certain employment. They may be able to be involved in childcare, other things. And, and we do know that the recidivism rate, which is the repeat rate of predators, is very, very dangerously high. Yeah. I mean, that, um, you know, and, and that doesn't mean that we don't believe that, you know, people can be forgiven and we don't believe that people can't change. But we do know that if people have displayed proclivities in this direction, that that is a tremendous temptation for them to reabuse or right. to react out. And so I favor what California did not do, which would say we're not going to let the judges decide, you know, whether these people end up on the, the registered list. We're just going to say as a matter of law, they go on the list. Hmm. Now, you know, let, let's, let's take... Um, you know, maybe the, the trend here, okay, is there is a little softness in the policy here that if uh, sexual activity is occurring within 10 years, so, you know, I mean, it could be up to a 24-year-old with a 15-year-old, right. okay, I mean, and that's still quite a disparity, but, yeah. you know, that if, if the sexual activity is occurring within a, a time period and we, the judge, uh, have some sympathy for the situation, um, we are not going to ruin this person's life. So that is going to, in my mind, create some policy or some encouragement that maybe some of these closer in age abuse situations are going to get treated less seriously 
Now, you know, the, the people that are advocating for it would say, well, it's still in the discretion of the judge and we trust the judge and we want the judge to exercise discretion. But I will say this, and, and I say this with respect to our judges, they have a huge amount of caseload and things are coming in and out. And, and I, I know they do, a, many of them do a yeoman's job, so we're not here to criticize it. But I mean, it's very hard for them to get involved and really know um, you know, what's going on in the situation, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. So let me tell you what the real world is, Eric. What happens is people with money get lesser sentences, okay? It's going to be the wealthy perpetrator, right. you know, that can go hire the expert, can go hire the good lawyer, that can hire all of the, you know, ammunition and show up and like blow the judge away. Like, oh, wow, look at this situation. And judge, right. here's what you need to do. And the judge is going to be like, all right, yeah. And so the wealthier will be able to get away with more than what we might call the, um, you know, economically less wealthy people, because they're not going to be able to afford that level of defense. So um, I personally think uh, California should have said, you know, what, let's take this burden off the, the judges. Let's let it be fair for everybody, you know, and also let's create a deterrent. You know, I, I do think, you know, a 20 year old man working in a school needs to know you know yeah. if you do something with a underage child yeah. your life is basically from a career standpoint over now what california is saying is well we're going to look at the the total circumstance and maybe let the judges you know give this guy or gal it can cut both yeah. ways it's not a gender mm -hmm. um but give them a an opportunity to uh, not end up as registered offenders for the rest of their life. So it, it definitely, in my mind, uh, was kind of pushed the wrong way. Uh, some people have said, and there's no evidence of this, but you could certainly see the policy in it, you know, is this encouraging, you know, more sexual activity from minors with adults? And, and certainly when you reduce criminal consequence, right. it always does kind of move in that direction where it becomes a a less scary world for a perpetrator that might otherwise be taking advantage of children. It's a very complicated thing because when I when I saw the headline, I was like, that doesn't sound right. Um, and it seems like that's a, you know, kind of a clickbait title. And then reading the bill, it was kind of an up and down for me of like, yes, that makes sense. No, that doesn't make sense. And, you know, I understand. So there are going to be cases where, you know, I, I mean, me and my wife, like I was, you know, two years older and there was a period when we were dating where I was an adult and she was a minor. We, we weren't, you know, we weren't having a sexual relationship, so it wouldn't have applied. But, you know, if we would have, technically that would have been illegal for that period, even though it would have been legal, you know, a few months later or a year later. Um, and so I could see in a case like that, a judge saying, oh, you know, that's not predatory. That's a relationship where, you know, you shouldn't have had sex at that point because of the age difference. But I could see them being lesser on a sentence like that. But but so I understood that. And I understood there not being an equality there of, you know, all these different forms of, of sexual relationships. But then I started looking, I was like, 10 years is a significant gap of time. Huge. And so, yes, you know, like you said, I'd rather fault on the side of not allowing more loopholes for a wider gap of people, you know, if they had shortened it to two years or, or one year or a few months, 
but instead to go to 10 years, I think that's where most people got concerned is then you're thinking, so could a 10 year old and a 20 year old, could a 15 year old and a 25, you start playing that out in your mind and you're like, yeah, that doesn't sound right. It seems like there's, even if most judges who have common sense are going to say, oh, let's, you know, obviously this is someone engaging in predatory behavior. It, it creates an opportunity for someone, like you said, to get a great lawyer to start convincing them that, oh, what he did was just a consensual relationship and it should fall under this law. And it's going to hold a lot of these cases up that are already being held up with tons and tons and tons of debate back and forth. The I, biggest I think it is a huge gap. I mean, yeah. and, and again, we're, we're not going to say that the courts would do this, but I mean, so an 18 year old and an eight year old, I mean, you can right. run all the, you know, a nine year old and a 19 year old. I mean, you just start down the, the 10 Once years. Once you start is, counting up, it, it's kind of shocking. And it it's going to, one of the big things that already happens with these cases, especially, you know, in the, in the stories that I've heard and talked to in church context is there's always a lot of guilt put on the the female in the situation who's a victim or the male in the situation who's a victim. Uh, but a lot of times specifically with an IFB culture, it can fall on the female for being the, you know, temptress or for seducing the man. And I see that in sure. cases where it is a 15 year old and a 30 year old man who should know better at that time not to be doing this stuff. And so I think it's going to raise a lot of times that question of consent. Like when can somebody actually give consent? And from my experience talking to both experts that work with trauma survivors from talking with actual victims of abuse, I don't see many 15, 16, even 17 year olds really being able to give consent in these relationships. Um, I, I think that's going to be one of the big challenges is identifying whether or not they actually consented or not. What we all know is there's no 15-year-old that runs across the spectrum. They, they vary. Right. So take the independent Baptist culture, okay? And part of the teaching is sheltering, mm-hmm. protecting, less outside influence, less media influence. And so I do think when you have a culture where the children are more sheltered that 15 16 17 they may think yes i'm ready and yes i want to engage in sexual activity with this 23 year old who in their mind is wealthy in their mind is spiritual in their mind is a leader in their mind is going to be their husband and and to me that's probably you know one of the the saddest elements is these predators will lie so pervasively into the minds and, and the false promises, you know, you know, the, the, the model of, you know, my wife is sick. They, they always have some, you know, she's soon to yeah. be gone, you know, and, and I'm going to marry you and God brought us together. And I find it certainly sex abuse is horrible and, and the actual abuse, but even if the child thinks, okay, I'm willing to engage in sexual activity, They've been told so many lies to get to that point right. that just unpacking the lies a lot of times can be a lifetime of recovery for them. And so I think exactly what you're saying, you know, just because this 16 year old girl says, yes, I will sleep with you. I will have sex with you. Um, knowing what got into her head and mind to get her to that point. Um, is very, very dangerous. And, and I, again, I would have preferred 
California to say, you know what, okay, we are treating heterosexual crime a little softer than homosexual crime, potentially. Okay, right. I, I, I think that there's some disparity there. Let's just treat them the same, but let's not soften both of them. Right. Let's strengthen both of them. That would have been my, if, if I was a voting member of the California legislature, which I'm not, um, <laughs> I would have leaned that way just as a matter of policy. But it does, again, um, you know, raise the spectrum in the church world that, you know, and I say this to victims too, it is not going to be the government that is going to fix this problem. It is going to be a collective, whether it's parental awareness, whether it's other victims speaking up, pastoral and church leader awareness, um, accountability, both in the courts and in the civil court arena. I mean, once people figure out that there is a team and, and in our culture that we have decided that we are not going to tolerate abuse of children in this way, um, that will collectively protect the children. And so I often say to folks, you know, be careful, you know, just because you've got strong laws in your area or just because you think, well, I'm not in California, thank God, I'm in Alabama. Right. It still takes um, a group, um, you know, a care group and, and those to look after the children uh, to make sure that uh, some child in your family or in your organization isn't being put in unnecessary risk. Right. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I, I think it is important to know that, you know, education plays a huge part in this. And it is going to be, you know, every every bill that's introduced, you know, by the time it goes through has some loophole or has something that's going to be abused. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's a responsibility of all of us to to be aware and be preventative. And hopefully these cases never get to a point where it does become a, a, a an illegal activity. So, um, yeah, I appreciate you being part of the education of this and explaining um, and talking through this. I know it's easy to see a headline and make assumptions. And I definitely think we both agree there's some parts of this bill that we're not happy about. There's some that are defensible and you can see where they're coming from. But definitely, I would hope that in the future, any bills that come out would you know, fault on the side of protecting children as opposed to giving potential to protect the abuser. But uh, just wrapping up here, what what's the best place for people to find some more uh, information about you and uh, maybe connect with your law firm if they have questions about uh, you know any kind of legal question to be able to to connect with you and and talk with you further? Well, and Eric, let me say this: uh, they can reach out uh, to um, the, the Gibbs Law Firm has a website, NCLL National Center for Life and Liberty. A lot of folks find us there. Uh, ncll.org easy way to connect up uh, if they ever contact you you can put them in right. touch with me i'm i'm certainly uh, honored to help uh, protect children across the nation i do um the, the things that excite me more than actually having to deal with abuse because that's so awful for the victim so awful for the organization the people is uh pastors and leaders who say let's prevent mm -hmm. it we're going to yeah. go zero tolerance. And so we, we have a lot of materials and resources to help with uh, background checks and screening and child protection policies and mandatory reporting and, and things that uh, religious leaders of the 70s um, did not value at the same level. And, and, and so we're, we're in a, a culture where, where times have changed. And um, as we watch in our culture, whether it's uh, child protection, it's a new world, church safety and security, you know, it's a new world now with COVID. 
uh, it's a new world, you know, thinking about public health and what can we do to even, you know, protect our children from viruses. And so uh, just instilling uh, that culture of prevention and protection is something we are passionate about. But uh, if somebody is victimized, uh, just so they know, um, it, we have attorneys, they can talk to us confidentially, doesn't mean they have to do anything. And I think sometimes just having a confidential resource to know your options. You know, what can I do? It doesn't mean you'll have to do it. You, you are the victim, it's your decision. But you know, has my statute of limitations run criminally? And, and by the right. way, in a lot of states, they've kicked them wide open. Um, has my statute of limitations run civilly? What options do I have? And then, you know, prayerfully, uh, we always encourage victims to look at their support group, and that could be a, a loving spouse or family members or supportive parents or uh, religious leaders or counselors or others that have stepped into their life and helped them. You know, once you know your options, uh, as I've said before, I believe when you empower good people with good information, they're then able to go forward and make good decisions. So if somebody needs me, uh, they can reach me through you or again, ncll.org. All right, perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on, everybody. Please check the show notes for links to the websites that were just mentioned. And definitely your first uh, contact should not be because something happened. Definitely try to get something preventative so you don't have to make a harder call in the future. So uh, right. David, thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking through this bill with me. Eric, my honor and appreciate your voice and your leadership. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.